and welcome to the season finale of Brides of Frankenstein. I am Melissa Oriema. I am Lindsay Sledzik. And today we have a very special episode of Brides of Frankenstein for you because- It is a very special episode. It is Lindsay's birthday mandate because Lindsay's birthday was yesterday! Hooray! And we've as we explained before, when it is our birthday week, we get to choose the movie that we will be talking about. And there is uh, no veto rule. Whatever we want, other person has to do it. So mm-hmm. if uh, you remember in September when it was my birthday, we did The Covenant, much to Lindsay. <laughs> we did. And much to my sadness. Much to your sadness. But it was a fun conversation. We had a good time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you seem to have a good time anyway. You had a good time too. How dare you? <laughs> And, but I think that we are going to both have very, a very good time this time around. But before I we think get, you're correct. Before we get into the movie though, I just want to ask you one thing. Do you like scary movies? Can I counter with a question of my own? Sure. What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Absolutely frightening. Um, that's right. Today we are talking about the 1996 classic. I think we can call it a classic at this point. Yes. Scream. Yay! We got here. So when people ask the question, what's your favorite scary movie? This is right at the top of my list. And when I say that, people people think um, just like saying it to be funny. Like, what's your favorite movie? Scream. Ha 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 ha. Like, no. No, this is a great movie. And one of the reasons why it is my favorite is because it has such a high rewatchability factor, which is something that we've talked about with other movies that we've covered this season. Like that's what makes it a good movie to us is that it doesn't lose any of the effectiveness on the rewatch. Yes, it's genuinely very frightening. And it's a very, it's a very scary movie. I think- now that we're almost people, like, people tend to refer more to the comedic elements of the film, which is, to be fair, one of the things that does make it such a great movie to rewatch. It still has that entertainment value, even if some of the scares kind of lose their lose their effectiveness. Um, the more times you've seen it, and we have seen this movie a lot. I've, yeah, a um, lot. It's still. It's still a very scary movie. I think that, that opening scene with Drew Barrymore ooh. is one of the scariest horror scenes of all time. It's so good. It's a combination of things, really. It's the director, obviously, Wes, Wes Craven, and yes. it's the writing. And Kevin Williamson, if you don't know who that is, you clearly didn't grow up in the 90s because Kevin, <laughs> exactly. Kevin Williamson was the man in, in the late, mid to late 90s he did Mm -hmm. everything so he wrote scream he wrote his own he wrote and directed his own horror movie uh teaching mrs tingle that didn't come out for a really long time because it was due to get released like right around columbine and and it got it got pushed for a number of years the scream the scream movies got really impacted by columbine as well a lot of horror movies got impacted by columbine and um but he's mainly famous for he also wrote the faculty but he is yes. he is most famous obviously for Dawson's Creek and you, that's right you hear that in this movie so 
hard. And obviously with Wes Craven, mm -hmm. it, it becomes this iconic, memorable thing. And, and, and what we're going to talk, we're yes. going to talk about it later, how this movie revitalized horror in a lot of different ways. It was, it, it really was did. It, it almost single-handedly uh, revived the genre in the late nineties, because at the time this movie came out, it was all sequels and bad remakes and rehashing the same old franchises. So you had, you know, your Friday the 13th movies, you had your mediocre Halloween sequels. It was just these, these franchises that had sort of lost their steam and they're just sort of like churning them out just to have something to, to present to the audience. And the audience was saying, no, thank you. And, so, Wes, and Wes Craven had just revisited Nightmare on Elm Street with a new nightmare in 1994. And the reason yes. why he came back was because that was a meta commentary and he thought that that mm -hmm. was really clever. And obviously that gets, you know, amped up to yes. 11 in Scream. Yes, we're definitely seeing a trend there. When was your first experience with watching Scream? When did you first see it? I first saw it... 1998, I think. I think it was the my first year out of Catholic school, which would be eighth grade. So 98. Came out of Catholic school, just went straight into the blood and guts and boobs. I, I, I mean, honestly, anybody who's spent any amount of time in Catholic school knows that actually kind of tracks. Catholic yeah, 100% tracks. I yeah, yeah. If you ever, yeah. If you ever want to know why I am the way that I am, just look at eight years of Catholic school. And I think that tells you everything. Ooh, yeah. So, I, <laughs> um, so that was my, yeah, I had a, I had a birthday party and it was the first, it was a big deal. Cause it was the first R rated movie that my mom had let me rent. And I kind of had to talk her into it. She was kind of hesitant about showing an R rated movie to my friends because we were having a and B, she thought it would be too scary for me, which it was. <laughs> yeah. I scare, I still scare very easily. I think my threshold has gotten higher now, or maybe it's just in a weird place. It's kind of hard to tell. I, but, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that your threshold has gotten a little higher. But I mean, I, I guess I, it's very easy for me to still creep myself out now. And when I was 13, which I think was my 13th birthday, I, we watched it. Um, it was, it took nothing at all to scare me, but I also kind of enjoyed it. And watching this movie with a group of friends when you're like in your early teens, uh, it, it is so fun. Cause everybody's sort of like feeding off each other's like chaotic, brightened energy and yep. like looking for excuses to scream. And there's so many good like jump scares and so many good moments that give you the opportunity to, to, to scream, to react, to yell, at the at the screen and the characters mm -hmm. um it's it's a very interactive movie from an audience perspective which i had not experienced up to that point like movies were always something that you watch and this was the first movie that i kind of felt like i was experiencing it with my yeah. friends yeah. i saw it for the first time my school did this thing where you kind of buddied up with a senior when you were a freshman and it's kind of like the closest I can approximate it to is like a, a sorority big and little. We had a sleepover in the spring of my freshman year. So I was about 14. It was in the senior dorm. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like senior dorm. And they were like, we're going to watch Scream. We're going to watch Scream and Scream 2. So I had a double whammy. Oh, fun. The same night. And mm -hmm. I 
I really enjoyed it. And, but I do remember be, being freaked out about it and having to hide mm -hmm. my face a couple of times. And I remember oh, yeah. when the movie was over, I had to make my way to the room that I was going to be sleeping in and walking down the dark hallway. I yes. remember being like, I know it was fake. I know it was fake, but I'm still like really freaked out. And it gives it you, it did a good job of giving you the look over your shoulder. But yeah. at the same time, I remember thinking like, this was really funny and enjoyable. I really yeah, enjoyed totally. watching it. It had, so, it had really great characters too. Um, it had this really snappy dialogue. I think it's the way you want to pretend that you and your friend sound when you're 14, 15, 16. That, and that is exactly what makes Kevin Williamson both so important to my mm. childhood and also- yes also the reason why I watch back like Dawson's Creek and things. And I'm like, oh my God, like really? Because it <laughs> is that, it is that thing of you, you, you're like, this is how I wish I sounded. And yeah, yeah. In your, in your head, this is how you and your friends sound when you're out. And it's never the reality. You sound, you think you sound so mature yeah. and, and grown up and intelligent. And when really, like, it, when really you think back and you're just like, Duh! like you do yeah. not even making any intelligible noises. But it's it was the first movie, it was the first movie I can remember watching where the characters were spitting back the dialogue that like I heard in my head, like, you know exactly. what I mean? And they like, all seem this cool. Is what my friends and I sound like, and it's being reflected back to me on screen. Yes. And we're, we're, we're going to get into it, but the plot of this movie I find is so interesting because mm -hmm. it, there's so much going on. And Wes Craven actually talked about in an interview about the reason why he was interested in the movie. And he, we'll talk about how he was hesitant to do it, but he really liked the script because it's a spoof. It's really scary. It's mm -hmm. got this sort of conversational tone that mm -hmm. had not been used in horror before. And it was also a soap opera. Like it's got this, yeah, yeah. this soapy overdramatic story mm -hmm. woven in to just good old fashioned yeah. slasher movie. And they managed to balance all these elements in such a way where they stayed just shy of kind of going over the top. And I mean, that's what's ever. Great. That's Wes Craven, exactly. Craven. It's because there are definitely elements in there that could be kind of schmaltzy. He manages he manages to toe the line so well, and the fact that it's balanced out with these genuinely scary scenes and this really witty kind of banter style of humor, I think also helps balance that out as well. I mean, there are moments in this movie that like that that feel like it is just ripped straight out of like Melrose Place. Like, and the musical cues, yeah. it's got that like, it's true, like 90s, that like mid, that early to mid nineties, like low sax, like kind of sound, <laughs> yeah. soundtrack, yeah. you know, it's, it gets weird. Yeah. So we open on Casey Becker, a local teen alone in her home when she starts getting a series of phone calls from stranger. Calls are odd, though fairly innocuous at first, but they grow more menacing each time the phone rings until they devolve into outright threats. And at first it's like flirty. It's like, 
why don't you want to talk to me? And he's like, well, I don't know. And it's like, what are you making? Yeah. Popcorn. It's, yeah. It, yeah. And, and it's, it's also where that I, the iconic line, what's your favorite scary movie is first introduced to the audience. And it is, it is kind of a, it is kind of like a, a, a fairly innocuous conversation. I mean, we look at it now and we're like, why are you talking to the stranger on the phone? You don't know who that is. Oh, what, God. But it's clear when she's first, when she first answers that um, she's not overly concerned with it. At one point, he, a- he even asks her, do you have a boyfriend? And she says, why? Do you want to take me out on a date? And he says, maybe. Ugh. And yeah, it's, it's, we look at it now yeah. as adults in our 30s and we're like, you're insane. Yeah. I know. I would have been like, (laughs) as a 35 year old woman, I hear that. Yeah. Eat a dick. And I would like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But even like, I even watching it for the first time as a teenager, you're still going like, hang up the phone. And I had to keep turning off this opening scene, not because I was scared, but more just because I was mad. Like, I was just like, oh, stop picking up the phone. But like at the same time, I, I, at the same at the same time nothing nothing is nothing is going to save her like she is doomed oh second doomed from jump also if so if you want to hear if you want to hear a if you want to see um a Wes Craven set up like this uh again he does it again in the movie Red Eye that came out in 2005 but that's, yes, more, yes, that's, yes, a, yes, that's right. but that's a low burn that's a slow burn that like is a over very 25 30 minutes yeah she has she has this kind of like flirtatious conversation going on obviously like it's sending up red flags to us as the audience but she's not necessarily picking that picking up, up yet until he says you still haven't told me your name and she says why do you want to know my name and he says because I want to know who I'm looking at. And just like that, this whole scene turns on its head. So we will get into that in a little bit when we get into the details. We're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive into this opening scene. Yeah, correct. We're kind of we're gonna yada 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 it a little bit in this part because we really wanted to like dig into this scene and great. And there's detail. so much that goes on in this movie. You we you have to kind of yada yada in order to deep dive into specifics yeah yeah exactly like that's for if we stopped every two seconds this thing would be five hours long that was true it's totally true so we discover that casey's boyfriend steve who was supposed to come over to watch some movies with her that night has been attacked and tied up on the patio outside and the voice on the other end of the phone pulls casey into a game of horror movie trivia in an attempt to save his life. When Casey incorrectly guesses Jason as the killer in Friday the 13th, Steve is unceremoniously gutted. The killer gives her one last chance to save herself by asking, what door am I at? And when Casey refuses to answer, he smashes in the patio door with a deck chair and makes his way into the house. Casey attempts to escape him, but she is chased and overpowered and ultimately stabbed in the chest. As she bleeds out, her parents arrive home to find the house filled with smoke and the scene of destruction in the living room. When Casey's mother picks up the phone to dial 911, she hears Casey, who's still on the other line, gasping and clinging to life. Her mother runs outside to go to the neighbor's house to call the police, only to see her daughter 
now gutted and hanging from the tree in the front yard. So I, that's the one part of this, this, this scene that up until like a couple of years ago, I did mm. not watch. I, it's a lot. I couldn't watch it because it just, I didn't like the, it wasn't just the fact that she was gutted. It's just the fact that her eyes are open and that she's just like it's, staring into space. It's, it's like, I honestly think it's one of the more haunting shots in the entire movie. Yeah. Like, um, one other thing that I want to mention for, about this scene is another part that freaks me out is when she, mm-hmm. when he says, um, you, you know, are you cool with that? Blondie? Cause it's like, oh. Just oh. reinforcing that. Yes, he is actually watching you. So the same night, Sydney Prescott is in her room when her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, sneaks into her window like a total fucking creep. And there's something, you put this in the notes, Allie, that this was like a thing in the 90s. Like, oh, yeah. So it was like, it's treated like it's something like fun and cute. This is something that happens so much in the 90s. It's the the boy, it's the boy climbing through, like the next door neighbor, although this is even creepier because I don't think they live near each other. Um, the mm-hmm. boy climbing through the window and you see it. I mean, if, if you, those of us who are around our age, remember the show, Clarissa explains it all. And Sam yeah. climbing into Clarissa's room had a guitar sting when she yeah. Like the the ladder would go up on the on the wall, and you'd hear "Hi, Sam," and you'd hear "Bow," and it's like, what is, what is this? And nobody ever, nobody ever questioned it. Like it's just something that you did. Even like me now, I didn't realize until I was well into adulthood that that's actually weird. It's really weird. Well, it's I've seen it, so it, you just. It but it's normal. a fairy tale trope. It's a fairy tale trope. It's Rapunzel. It it's the prince going into Rapunzel's tower. And I mean, whereas I'm, I'm of the opinion now that maybe the prince should just stay out unless somebody invites him in. So yeah, he climbs into her bedroom, and this is yes, he climbs, he climbs into her bedroom and says he's not there to pressure her into having sex, and then immediately pressures her into having sex. I hate <laughs> Billy. So much because mm-hmm. he is set up as like, ooh, you're hot. Like you're the hot yeah. boyfriend, whatever. And he's horrible. He's, he's the worst. And and the, the reason why, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why he sucks, even before you find out what happens, you know, like with the movie, is this whole <laughs> I was what I was, you know, I was at home and I was watching the ex- exorcist and mm-hmm. I thought of you. Cause you know, we started out two years ago, really like hot and heavy and on our way to an R rating. And now we're just edited for television. So one, that is the line of a smug asshole who thinks he's much more clever than he actually is. And two, shut up. (laughs) Also, how did he really think that that was going to work? Like, honestly, I feel like we're just. You just aren't putting out, really, Sydney. That's what yeah. he's saying. Yeah. And you find, and it's even. I am a man, and I have needs. And it's like, just shut up. Let shut me up. have my feelings. Oh God, yeah. I hate it so much. Blech. Disgusting. It. So, in the midst of all this, Sydney's father knocks on the door. Um, while Billy hides behind the bed, we learn that her dad is going to be out of town at a business conference and won't be back for several days. Um, her dad says good night, and then Billy talks some more shit. And then finally leaves. They make out a little bit. Oh, they make out a little bit. Yeah, and it's um, like trivia though. The song, yeah. the song that they're making out to, is a mm. very 
a very slowed down 90s, 90s uh, wah, wah, wah cover of uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. Now you're describing it like that, which hurts my feelings a little bit because that is actually my favorite cover of all time. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean it like as an insult. It is though. Uh-huh. Like uh-huh. like no, a- it's, it's, a, it's, so it's a cover by, it's a cover by Gus Black. It's like a very slowed down acoustic guitar version with uh, like some low strings in the background. It's very, it's very nineties, but it's also very, moody and a little bit tense and it's kind of the perfect backdrop to to the scene and a, a like a perfect addition to the soundtrack for this movie especially since it, it, it has a very specific sound like every time I hear that song that version come on because I have it on like four different playlists it just it just brings me back to that especially because they're they, they're playing it as like this, this makeout montage is happening and Stu keep, or yeah. Billy keeps trying to touch Nev, uh, Sydney's or like put his hands up Nev Campbell's shirt. So Sydney arrives at school the next day to a total media circus where various news crews are out in front of the school reporting on the gruesome double murder. We get a lingering shot of reporter Gail Weathers played by Courtney Cox, who is outstanding in this Amazing, movie. amazing before Sydney's friend Tatum appears and explains explains what happened the night before to Sydney. Um, I just want to take a quick quick pause to note that Gail Weathers is wearing a two-piece skirt and jacket suit in a double mint gum shade oh. of neon green. It is. And it makes it, I texted this to Alyssa. It made me think of that scene in Schitt's Creek where Alexis is trying on the scrubs for the vet's office. And David says, you look like a stick of gum. <laughs> and that's what I think of when I watch that scene now, because uh, it's very 90s. And she has this really bright, like red lipstick too. So it's just a very weird. It's so it's bad. Very, and her, and, and she's got these ashy blonde highlights. It is just all very, very bad. Yeah. But very very 90s in a very specific way. So we learn that all the students are being interviewed by by the police, which includes Tatum's brother, police deputy Dewey, as part of the investigation. And after class, Sydney gathers with Billy, Tatum, Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, and perpetual fifth wheel and film nerd, Randy, to compare notes from their interviews. So we forgot to mention this before, but in the crush of reporters outside the school, we do get a cameo from Linda Blair, AKA Reagan from The Exorcist. Uh, She also appears in a later scene as a reporter who kind of accosts Sydney on her way into school screaming about how people deserve what it's like to be almost brutally butchered. And like (laughs) in her face and it's like- Like literally in her face. And it's right after Dewey tells uh, Sydney like, Okay, you're gonna be fine. It's school. You're gonna be safe here. School, you're gonna be fine. How does it feel to be brutally butchered? I was like, God. Uh, yeah. Good lord. My, my favorite part about that scene too is in the background. You hear Dewey say, "She just wants to get an education." There are some great lines in this movie. So good, and like a lot of like a lot of like little background lines too, like things you don't necessarily hear the first time or the second time or the 10th time, but when you watch this movie 200 times like we have, you start yes. to think. Uh, another one that I love is when they're uh, by the fountain, like uh, checking their notes and stuff, cause they're like discussing mm. the day or whatever. 
Sydney's like, yeah. how do you, how do you gut someone? And she's not really asking. She's just like, no, it's like, it's a, it's definitely a rhetorical question. Yeah. She's just like, how do you even do that? Pipes up like, oh, you want to know how to gut someone? I can tell you how to gut someone. You take a knife and you slit them from groin to sternum. And, uh, yeah. Stu- <sighs> and Billy has one of my best, my favorite lines in the whole movie. He goes, Hey, it's called tact, you fuck rag. <laughs> it's such a great, such it's a great, such a great line. Because it's just his face is just like, yo, shut up. <laughs> like, yeah, be read cool. The room. <laughs> read the room. Yeah, buddy. exactly. Oh, it's so good. All right, so Sydney accepts an offer from Tatum to stay with her until her dad gets back. While she's packing up her stuff to go to Tatum's house, she takes a break and turns on the TV but all the news reports are all about the double murder. And this is where we learned that Sydney's mother, Maureen, was brutally raped and murdered one year, one year ago. And Gail uh, has been like the, you can tell that Gail has been like the person pushing the story. Like we don't know how yes. much yet, but that's the person on the TV when she's slipping through the channels. And we do learn shortly after that Gail has been pushing a theory that the man convicted of this murder, Cotton Weary, was in fact framed. Um, and we also learned that it's Sydney's testimony that got essentially got him convicted in the first place. Cotton Weary, it's baby, baby Liam Schreiber. <laughs> baby Liam Schreiber, yeah, yeah. Who's in this movie for a single shot. Literally for a single uh, shot. And I remember yes. when, I, when I realized it was him being like, what? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but that's but, so it's setting up that there's already some background tension and history between these two characters uh, surrounding the death of Sydney's mother. And Sydney's already, and, and we can, and, and Sydney's got some stuff is, there's some things happening in her life. Some, some unresolved trauma yeah. uh, from, from uh, resulting from her mother's death. So after, after packing her things, Sydney lays down to take a nap. And it's already dark when she's awoken by a phone call. The voice on the other end is the same as the one from the opening scene. And at first, Sydney thinks it's Randy playing a prank. Soon, however, the killer appears in the house and chases her up the stairs. Sydney locks herself in her bedroom and attempts to dial 911 using her computer. As she's typing, she realizes she can no longer hear the killer in the hall behind her. At that exact moment, Billy comes through the window claiming he heard her screaming, but the front door was locked. As he's comforting her, a cell phone falls out of his pocket. Sydney backs away in horror, rushing down the stairs and flinging open the front door to find Dewey standing on the other side. Billy is arrested and Sydney goes down to the station to give her statement. We learn that Dewey is having trouble locating her father at at his conference. This will be important later. And so much cell phone stuff. It, it's just so, it's so delightful. And it's interesting. It's interesting too, because this movie was really made like at the, at the, the advent of cell phones. Like it was in 1996. It was very unusual for people to even have one in the first place. And so, there's, and there's so, a question so the shot the cop says, the cop says to Billy, like, what are you doing with a cell phone? What are you doing with a cell phone? Yeah. It's not, it's not the ubiquitous, ubiquitous kind of like tool that we have now like everybody's got cell phones now like nobody even has landlines like my nephew's that's... pissed my nephew's pissed he didn't get a cell phone for his birthday he's 10 yeah no exactly exactly it's something that we just sort of take for granted as part of everyday life but in in 1996 like that shot of the the phone falling out of his pocket it's like a bomb going off like, like that makes 
yeah it's literally like people like rearing back in their seat like oh dun 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 it's literally like it's literally like that because because it is just something that I mean I, I remember being alive in 1996 like nobody had cell phones I didn't even I was like cell phone what I was no. still trying to figure no. out whether or not I had internet like I, I was I didn't even I have even internet I, I don't even think I had internet in 1996 I think I, I did not it. have full reliable internet until I went to high school because I had to because we had uh, email. yeah and, every, well, and everything everything we had until I think like 2003 was fucking dial-up oh <laughs> waiting for those JPEGs. God forbid, God forbid you be in the middle of something when your aunt calls because now you're disconnected and now you have to wait for your mom to get off the phone so you can get back online. Waiting for those JPEGs to load. God almighty. Oh, Don't even get started on like starting to download on Napster and having to wait the whole fucking night for it to finish. Oh. Like that Blink-182 song was never worth it. Sydney and Tatum get snuck out the back way by Dewey, but Gail finds them because she's a, a, a shark. She, yeah, yeah, exactly. She finds them, she kind of corners them and leads like the rest of the, the, the media mob oh. uh, over to where they're, trying, they're attempting to make their escape. Uh, we learn that Gail is releasing a book on Maureen Prescott's murder and Sydney, just fed up with the night in general, Punches Gail right in the face. So good. So once they're back at Tatum and Dewey's house, Sydney actually gets another phone call from the killer who taunts her about accusing the wrong guy in her attack before laughing and hanging up. The next day at school, Sydney runs into Billy in the hallway who had been released after his cell phone records had been checked. He talks more shit before Sydney runs away. Oh. Uh, basically, like basically variations on a theme like we talked about before like I know your mom was murdered and I know you have unresolved trauma from that and I know it's made things really hard for you but also like I need to get laid the fact that I have a girlfriend who would rather who'd sooner accuse me of murder than touch me <laughs> it's like oh, ah! drama queen shut up that and your ah! par- look when my parents split up I just got over it and she's like your parents broke up. My mom was murdered. Yeah, yeah. Your mom, your mom left town. My mom is literally dead. Dead. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I just, I want my girlfriend back. I'm like, shut up. Shut up. No, the worst. The worst. Even if he didn't end up being the killer, spoilers, he Spoiler. would still be the worst. And also, like, Skeet Ulrich is a, I, I know that he's gotten a lot of popularity now because he's on Riverdale. So he's like, he's had a resurgence. Um, because he's on Riverdale. I think he plays Jughead's dad on Riverdale. Maybe I don't watch Riverdale, but I know that he's like very popular again because he's on Riverdale. Yes. And at, but at this point in history, he was the Johnny Depp that you got when you couldn't get Johnny Depp. So. Yeah, no, that's absolutely 100. Because <laughs> he's a dead ringer for Johnny Depp. And it's just like, but, but it's like, when you can't afford Johnny Depp, you get Skeet Ulrich. And I mean, no, yeah. no, no shade to Skeet Ulrich, but he's got that, like, I am covered in gun oil and I'm, I'm, I'm broody and, and, and hot in a creepy way, sort of. Vibe. He does have the crazy eyes. Oh, and they get, they get used to good effect at the end of this movie. Yes, they do. Yes, they so, do. So she so, runs so, yeah. so he talks, so he talks his shit and then Sydney runs away only to 
get attacked by somebody in a ghost face mask and a black robe in the bathroom um and i've read a lot about the scene how it's like a subversion of like the killer hiding in wait to attack trope but that's i mean that's based off the assumption that the person in the bathroom isn't actually the killer yeah which a lot of people have posited over the years with almost 100 percent confidence and i'm not quite sure where that comes from like to me it reads just as easily as the killers in the bathroom as the other way around i think it to me it also always reads as a very kind of teenager high school drama thing yeah like it, it oh yeah i never I always am surprised when the killer shows up in the bathroom, even though that's a very common trope because Mm -hmm. it is playing on top of the, I'm in the bathroom listening to people talk shit about me. And I think that you get pulled into that trope. And as Mm -hmm. a result, you're totally taken aback when the killer is in the bathroom. Like it, it, yeah. It twists your expectations. Plus those girls. No, it definitely does. I guess, I guess my, uh, what was that? Those girls suck. Oh, they're the worst. After school, Stu runs into Tatum and Sydney and tells them that he's hosting an impromptu party at his house despite the town-wide curfew that's gone into effect. Sydney reluctantly agrees to attend and she and Tatum go to the local grocery store to pick up some snacks and supplies before heading to the party. Um, one really quick funny story about this scene. So one, one funny story about this scene really quick is there is a shot of Tatum and Sydney outside one of the freezers and they shut the door and you see the reflection of the killer and the ghost mask and the rope in the in the door and the first time she watched the movie with us my sister yelled oh my god he's in the freezer and we were like no he's not what are you talking about i love your sister i mean to be to her credit i think she was like 10 or 11 at the time so oh. It was very funny. Scary. Uh, <laughs> we'll cut this part, but I'm going to double check with her before we... Oh! So not long after they arrive at the party, Gail actually crashes it to plant a video camera to try and capture evidence that they are in fact dealing with the same killer from the Prescott murder the year before by filming drunk teenagers, I guess. Uh, her, her logic is very... I don't very understand. Weird. Yeah. So what follows is a half hour of fucking chaos it's chaos it's absolute chaos we i mean you know what we're gonna give you a little peek behind the curtain i tried to recap this scene and you can't there is so much action crammed into a relatively small amount of time it's like the entire first two-thirds of the movie is a build-up to this scene yep and when i say it's chaos by the way i don't want to imply that it doesn't work on any level because it all comes together beautifully there's just a lot that happens and 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 Lindsay who types up the summary uh, every week and I kind of pop in with my like and this thing also happened little <laughs> asides um yeah. she, she was typing it and she and she texted me and she was like I can't I, I don't know how to do the last half hour of this movie or like 45 minutes of this movie it's just yeah your chaos yeah and I said we'll just we'll just write down some notes and we can just kind of go from there and 
her notes are the funniest <laughs> thing because it's just stream of consciousness, like a list of what happens, but it's just increasing yeah. in, in hysteria. As we go. <laughs> you could, you would see, you could see like my mental state, like deteriorating as I'm trying to like keep on top of everything that happens like it's basically this fucking laundry list and like the more I get into it the more I'm like we can't talk about everything okay so basically like a cliff's notes version of this scene because yeah we're we're gonna give you we're gonna give you the main beats for this for for the climax of this film the first the first important thing that happens in the scene is that Tatum is killed when she is crushed by a garage door um and that is that for me that is the worst death in the whole movie because I really root for Tatum. I love Tatum. I rooted for her in her death scene because she fought like hell. And she I, fought a that felt and still feels real. Yeah. Like she's not like she's not, you know, some kung fu master or anything. Like she's not, you know, hit, like landing punches to the face or anything like that. She's throwing beer bottles. She's hitting him with the uh with the, the freezer door. Yeah. With the fridge. She when she can't get the door open, she tries to jam herself through the dog door. Dog door. And that's when the killer turns the turns the garage door opener on. Oh. And she gets stuck in the door as it pulls her up. So her head gets crushed between like the, the frame. And that's the one that that and the, the first scene are the two scenes that are really hard for me to watch. They're very hard. They're very hard to watch. Because it's these innocent people that you, I mean, Casey, you don't really get to know her that well, but it's Drew Barrymore. You're just, you are, you are psychically trained by society to like Drew Barrymore. Like even are now when this movie came out in 96, she was sort of still a persona non grata. Yes. But even in 1996, you were still rooting for her. She had the the name recognition. Right. But this is right when she was coming back. Like she had done Poison Ivy. She had done her biography, Little Girl Lost. Like this is right (laughs) when she was, and and, and even when she was, and I'm talking more about public perception. Mm -hmm. She's just that girl that you genuinely, like every time you see her on screen, you just, you're just like, I think she seems nice and I would like to be her friend. She seems like a really good person. And And that's definitely how you feel with Casey at the beginning of that scene. And with Tatum- you have just fallen in love with her this entire movie. And I think yeah. that um, this was my first, in- this was my introduction to Rose McGowan when yeah. I was a kid. And mm-hmm. I love her. Yes, she has moments where you kind of follow her on, fo- on social media and you're like, Ugh. maybe you but shouldn't follow her. <laughs> don't, it's just a don't, lot, don't, it's a no. lot. Um, but, but she is so natural and funny and, caring yeah. and sassy and so to and watch her die like this and she's horrible. a good she's a good friend to sydney too yes like this is a great example of really strong female companionship which is something you don't get a lot of in really this, good friend to sid in this genre yeah they're they're really good friends and they're friends in a way that does feel real yes yep and yep. so to watch her so to watch her not only die but die horribly after putting up the fight that she does it's really really hard yeah and nobody knows because they're all and nobody knows they're all in the uh the other room watching and the music the music is so loud that they can't hear her screaming for help yep and they're all what and they end up starting to watch halloween and randy 
goes through the um the rules in order to survive a horror movie because randy is the film yes. guy and and they go through yes. you can't have sex you can't drink or do drugs and you can't you'll can, like, I, can, you can i have... can i interrupt you we yeah. have a section where we talk about oh right 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 tropes of the movie so i think it would probably flow better if we go through the rules in that section perfect um so 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 there's all this stuff going on and then billy like you know comes in and billy shows up, up billy shows up they go to a room to talk and they end and, up having sex and sydney gives it up to billy and it's just and sydney, like, sydney gives it up to billy and like, like almost as soon as they're done he is stabbed by the killer Bye. Oh yeah, like um, instantaneously. And there's also moments- Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And so, it's just, it kind of reverts that trope too, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so while this is happening, Gail and Dewey discover Sydney's father's car crashed into a ditch not far from the house. And they were out walking after Dewey had received a call about an abandoned vehicle. So he invites Gail to take a walk to go investigate it. Because Gail's been hitting on Dewey like the whole- gives you- movie uh, yeah but has she really been hitting on him or there's like a there is like she's doing it to manipulate him for sure oh, but i a, feel I like at the beginning she's manipulating him but i think at this point she finds him charming as well yeah sort of against her but even when yes. he likes her to go into the house with her or with him she does roll her eyes at the cameraman behind his back oh yeah just, like up her coat she so, finds him charming but like this guy dopey yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they discover Sydney's father's car, um, which will continue to be important. Something so the old cameraman before. gets gets shivved uh, in the van. He does yeah, he gets his he gets his throat slashed after the killer had chased Sydney out of the house after he'd stabbed Billy. So he kind of like chases her into the attic, and then she escapes by going out the window. Yep, and goes back through the front door and manages to catch up to her outside the news van as Kenny dies. Oh, Kenny. She, try, she manages to like lock herself in and then escape through uh, like a hatch in the back of the van. Oh, poor Kenny, he literally used his dying breath to tell her to lock the door. I know, poor Kenny, and he gets yeah, he deserved he deserved better. He gets you know though his death leads to one of my favorite moments in the movie too when Gail gets in the van to try and like drive for help and yeah. she turns on she turns on the headlights and there's this like weird kind of sheen across the um the windshield and when she turns on the windshield wipers you realize it's, it's blood. blood it's blood and that's because uh, the killer had stashed kenny's body on top of the van and he's been like bleeding out all over the windshield like it's sad but it's also such a great it's so good and she's just and and gail's like "Ah." her reaction is so good to it too she's freaking Uh, out it's so good yeah yeah and it's great because we were all freaking out too it was awesome so while gail is attempting to escape in the van and by the way she does crash the van yep in her attempt to like dislodge kenny from the roof um so we see the van go down like an embankment and kind of like hit a tree now uh, while this is happening dewey goes into the house and end up, ends up getting stabbed by the killer and this happens off screen so yeah we don't like, see it then he kind of stumbles and falls and you see that he's got a knife lodged and sydney sydney like sees dewey, dewey yes. coming out of the house and he turns and the knife is like buried oh yeah well yeah another another character who deserves better 
I know. I we'll talk about the it, more, but I, I love Dewey. I know. The more I watch this movie, the more I think Dewey is my favorite character. I love Dewey. He just is. He just means well. He just he's, he's doing. Fine. Yeah, he's doing. Fine his best. so hard. And also, like I think he he sort of plays up this trope of like the incompetent, like doofy cop, but he's actually not incompetent. He's just not. No, he's just young. He's just young, and he, and, and, and you know, he's young, and he doesn't have this sort of like grizzled attitude that and the viewpoint is of Tatum because Tatum is uh because Tatum and Dewey are are siblings and it's this viewpoint of like oh god Dewey boy like like yeah my 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 stupid dorky older brother like Dewey being like when you're when you when I wear this badge you treat me like a man man of the law (laughs) I also love it when 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 he calls the killer, calls him, calls Sydney at their house. Yes, and they all run out of the room, and they're because because he hung he, the killer hangs up on her like, oh, you got the yes. wrong guy, and he hangs up on her, and they run out of the room, and Dewey comes in and he picks up the phone and goes, hello, <laughs> Dewey. He comes he comes in and picks up his phone, but he's also got his gun drawn, which is my other favorite. <laughs> like, what are you gonna do with that, bud? It's so good. It's so oh, good, Dewey. Poor Dewey. Uh, Sydney attempts to escape the killer by like running back into the house and locking the door where we find out that, oh my God, Billy's still alive. Oh my and God. Then, then we find out, oh my God, Billy is actually the killer. That And, and that? Then we find out that there are two killers. Oh my God. also the killer. But also the, 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 I think the part that I remember the most specifically from the first time I watched this movie was, you know, do, uh, Billy's covered in blood. And he reaches down, he reaches up to his mouth and he sucks on his finger or he licks his finger. Yes. And he goes, corn syrup, same thing that they use for the, the pig's blood and carry. And it's yeah. like, oh, shit. It's like, he has the, and then, the thingy and he's like, surprise. Stu ha- yeah, Stu, Stu comes around the, the corner and Sydney starts to ask him for help and he holds up a voice changer uh, to his mouth and says, surprise, Sydney. And this is and when Matthew like, Lillard goes from being kind of chaotic and but harmless to like absolutely bonkers. He, you know what? To use uh, D&D parlance, he goes from like chaotic neutral to chaotic evil in the span of like three seconds. Your mom was no Sharon Stone. It's like- Yeah, such a mind-blowing twist for 13-year-old me because it genuinely- had not occurred to me up to that point that there could be two killers. So like, I remember like watching it with my friends and there was a lot of debate, like is Billy the killer or is Stu the killer? Because that, I think we all kind of came down on one or the other. Right. Like I think Rand kind of thrown in as a red herring, but none of us really kind of, none of us bought into that. Randy um, was, so it, Randy was written as too likable to be. I agree. I agree. Killer, I think so. part of it is just, I didn't want him to be the killer. So I just refused to even consider it. Same. Uh, so the fact that they were both the killer was mind-blowing to me. And again, yeah. like I was 14, so that's fine. But it's such a cool element because it does explain all these little plot holes. Like, we'll have to be in, like, two places at once. Like, that, exactly. Yeah. Who is inside the house when Tatum is killed? Like, who's attacking her in the garage? Yeah, because they cut back. They cut back. <laughs> to yeah. you mm-hmm. and a bunch of people watching watching the movie exactly watching halloween and mm-hmm. yelling and like you know and 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 Stu yeah. is kind of hammered at this point he's like i want to see jamie lee's breasts and um <laughs> just like let me see her boobs and th- so you're like oh well then it can't be him but then it's like oh but 
He wasn't there when that happened. And it's like Bruce Willis is dead at the end of Sixth Sense, spoiler alert, where you where you have to go back and kind of like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, but you, yeah, you, start, you start like backwards engineering everything. Like you go through it and you're like, oh no, that totally that that makes so much more sense. And it's it's a really cool, it's a really cool. I'm not gonna call it a plot twist. It's a very cool like plot reveal. Yeah. Um, and they also so they reveal, they reveal that the reason Sydney's oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just about to say. So the reason that they did it is, well, it's so funny because they do this whole thing where Billy's like, oh, you want a motive? You want a, like, you need a reason for me? Like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. what's his face? Um, uh, Norman Bates didn't have a motive. He was just a psycho or whatever. Yeah. And do we know why Hannibal Lecter like to eat people? Eat people? No. But, but then they were like, but we'll give you a motive anyway. Like, and, and so you find yeah. out. Well, the, and, and that they, was- they've been planting the seed of the movie that mm-hmm. Sydney's starting to doubt that Cotton is the one that killed uh, her mother because there's a conversation yes. that she has with Gail after she punched her in the face. And mm-hmm. Gail's like, I've talked to Cotton like a hundred times. He's not changed a word of his story. Yeah. I- he admits to having an affair with your mother, but that's it. Because it is, it is framed as like a rape and a murder initially. No. learn that like, the affair may have actually been consensual. Yeah. And was- So it's, was, so it's, a, it's a lot of like reframing what you, what you think you know about like your history and your family's history. So you definitely see the seeds of doubt getting planted throughout the movie. And it comes to a head in this scene when Billy reveals that Sydney's mother was having an affair with his father. And that's why his mother left so the, the plan is to frame Sydney's father for all the for all the murders uh that have taken place over the last couple of days and that's why we find his car crashed near Stu's house because they've basically been like holding him hostage where are Stu's parents by the way I don't even think they exist I think Stu just I don't think spawns. I don't think they I don't yeah, because one, there's this huge fucking party happening and they're nowhere to be found. But if you're holding a man hostage in your house, don't you think somebody would notice? I feel like I would notice. I would definitely notice. Uh, but that's, yeah, I, that's a bananas thing to think about. We but, find out that that Sydney's father has been basically like stashed in a closet this entire time. Yeah, yeah, and they cloned and they cloned his cell phone and use that to make the calls so that's why uh billy's record was clean exactly and it, and it was and that's why they were they found out that all of the phone yeah. calls were coming from sydney's dad's phone like and exactly we know that we know that those calls were coming mm-hmm. from his dad's phone and we know exactly. that they can't they haven't been able to get in touch with with him and yeah so part of their grand scheme is that billy and sue are going to be the only ones left alive at the end of this like they were they were like left for dead, quote unquote, left for dead. But then they were the only ones who survived. So in order to sell that, they start stabbing each other a lot. This is the one scene in the movie that could be labeled gratuitous. Um. Also, but, but also, I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna label it gratuitous, but it is intentionally gratuitous. Like it's def it's meant to show that they're on the verge of losing control. Also. I could write a doctoral dissertation mm. on the homoerotics of this scene, but I'm just not even going to say anything. I'm just going to put that in your head and then nope. make you all go back and revisit the scene where they stab each other. Honestly, if this is, if it wasn't already in your head, 
Billy's saying to Stu, Billy's saying to Stu, they're all panting. They're out of breath. Billy's saying to Stu, stick to the side and don't go in too deep. Like, come on. Is that innuendo? Not even innuendo. It's basically just text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subtext has gone out the window. And in the middle of this, Gail comes back, um, who's apparently like awake and after crashing into the tree. She comes in and she's like, I'm going to. I'm going to, uh, the, the, yeah. how's this for a, for a story? The, the reporter comes to and finds the gun and saves the day. And then she tries to yeah. shoot safeties on. So while she's like clicking the gun, trying to, trying to get it to get it to go off, Billy like basically gives our, gives our hard shove in the chest. She hits the, the pillar on the porch and gets knocked out again. Sure. And he goes to, he goes to shoot her, but then Stu gets his attention because in the confusion of Gail returning, Sydney has disappeared. And, and then she's the phone. Taken, she's taken the cell phone and she calls him from in, she calls uh, Stu's house. She's taken the cell phone and she calls Stu's house phone and taunts them with the same, what's your favorite scary movie? And the voice recorder. She, she, she and, grabs the voice, the voice modulator. Yes. And it's like, oh no, yes. you know what? She she calls them and she says, Are you alone in the house? That's are you alone says. in the house? And I've got a she movie. It's a voice like- modulator. So it's cool because you can actually hear her voice kind of layered over uh Roger Jackson's voice, which is a really, really cool sound effect. And then that. she and then her voice comes in at the end when she's like, I yes. got a scary movie. It's called I called the police and 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 reported your sorry motherfucking ass. Yeah. But and this yeah. leads to, I think, my favorite moment of the entire movie which one billy's like you bitch ah! and he's running through the house he's trying to find her yeah he's like tearing up the the couch meanwhile Stu definitely bleeding to death because there's blood coming out of his mouth and he's like i think i'm dying man coming too deep i think i'm dying man and so he's kind of like on the ground on like the kitchen counter kind of slumped mm-hmm. over and he grabs the phone and and he goes hello and um and Sydney goes, oh, Stu, 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 what's your motive? You know, Billy's got one. The police are on their way. What, what are you going to tell them? Why'd you, why'd you do it? And ten peer two, pressure. I'm far go, too sensitive. <laughs> the other, the other great part of that scene is when he asks Sydney, did you really call the cops? And she says, I bet I did. And he goes, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Matthew so, Lillard is so good in this movie. He's so so good in this movie like you talk about talk about committing 110 percent. oh he's so good and he and he and and it's it's over the top in a way that is so perfect for this character like it's a it's a performance that's very specific to this particular to this particular character and i know you can say that about any performance like whatever it works because of the way he's kind of built up stew throughout the movie like he's had this sort of manic energy from the start except now it's being channeled into something really destructive yeah and he's got that like at the beginning of the movie he's just like that that goofy kid that's just like you know he picks up his girlfriend and like throws her over his shoulder he's like getting drunk he's like i'm having a party my house it's great He's like, and so to see that energy go to full evil is really yes. unsettling. Um, because it's, it's, it's like very, Billy, because like unsettling. Billy is like whatever. Like, Billy's a creep. Billy's a creep from the beginning. Billy's it's been like, a creep from jump. Of course, you're of course you're the killer. Like yeah, that that all, that all tracks. But yeah, it is interesting 
to see the way that energy is flipped with Stu. And I, I think the reason why it stops just short of being too over the top is because he is genuinely scary to watch. Like yeah. to see some to see someone become that unhinged that quickly is very unsettling. I think that's I think it's just enough to ground what is like we said a very chaotic performance. He's very wild-eyed and it's and yes, it's and, and when he's being, you know, you know, whatever and he's being kind of, you know, fun, it's it's a it's a fun kind of chaotic energy where it's like oh that that guy be really fun he's the guy you kind of want to hang out with like yeah he's wacky but you'll have a good time yeah and uh, like but to an extent like i'll have a good time with you (laughs) until it gets weird and then i'm I'm, and it's gonna get weird real fast yeah yeah absolutely he does get the best death in the whole movie he gets the tv uh pushed on his head he does he does end up dying by getting a tv dropped onto his face um i think it's would have wanted to go Honestly, we forgot to mention too that Sydney has been hiding in the closet. So while Billy is carrying like, around the house, looking around the house her. looking for her, she surprises him by jumping out of a closet and stabbing him, like basically stabbing him in the chest with an umbrella. umbrella. And it's definitely not like a kill shot. It's definitely meant basically to incapacitate right. him enough to, kind of, to to like to like knock him out. There is a shot where she like hits him square in the chest, and he gives this like really sharp cry of pain and he, he like drops to the ground like a sack of potatoes and that was real because he Ulrich had had heart surgery so he had um he had like a wire in his chest from the surgery and when she hit him with the umbrella tip she happened to get him right there it was like a one in a million shot and she just happened to hit it so that <sighs> like that yeah pain like grunt and the way he drops to the ground that is real it's a real that, for me that's the hardest shot in the movie to watch because that's the one that i know is is that's like real no it makes me think of uh it makes me think of vigo mortensen in the two towers when he when he broke the, his toes when he broke his toe ah! yeah when he the pyre scene and you hear him let out this cry of grief and rage and he drops to his knees and it's amazing and it's powerful and then you find out oh no he just he broke his toe two of his toes and those are actually like screams of Ah! because you know because like we said it wasn't it wasn't like a kill shot with the umbrella billy jumps up and tries and attacks sydney but he is shot in the chest by gail who has come to and grab the grabs the gun and shot him right before he could stab Sydney. And she has a great line where she says, guess I remember the safety that time, you bastard. I love it. And then they creep over. I, I also love this where they creep over to the the bodies. And yes. And Randy's like, this is the part in every hor- in every scary movie where the killer comes back to life for one last, for one scare. last scare. And you know what's gonna happen. And but when it and it, and it still freaks and that's out. Exactly what he does and it makes you it makes you jump. And then Sydney shoots him in the head and now he's dead and now he's dead for real yeah we also forget to mention that throughout all of this uh randy is also there yeah and uh when sydney shoots her shandy shoots billy she goes not in my movie yes Yes. so the film ends with gail looking battered and bruised but ready to report on the events of this long terrible night as the camera pans up to catch the sun finally starting to rise over the hills and this ending shot is maybe my favorite shot in the entire movie like there's just something about the combination of 
Gail's voiceover and the music. And it's, a, again, a very 90s, so very 90s uh, kind of score under, under all of this. And then there's and, a quick- And the way the camera like pulls back and then kind of moves, moves off of her as she yep. does this report. It's, there's something about it that legitimately gives me goosebumps every time I watch it. It's so good. I'm not, sure, I'm not quite sure what it is that, about it that gives me that reaction, but I find myself looking forward to it every single time I watch this movie. And I always forget about that little jump that they do at the very, very end. Yeah, ends, yeah. And then you get a shot of Ghostface, and then it goes. One more, credits. one more, one more jump scare for the road. And it's like, come on! And oh, it's so good. And then yeah, credits. Why, why, why do we do that? End credits. Um, okay, so we got to talk about the opening scene. Uh, we do, we do. I love the, I love the fact that this scene is thirteen minutes long. I know. Perfect horror movie number. Love that. So the. The thing, the thing about the scene that's so great for me is that it's almost like watching a movie in and of itself. Like, the, like this, these 13 minutes could be like a short film. Like it has, it has the structure of a full story, like beginning, middle, end. And it's perfectly paced. Um, in fact, I've seen people refer to it as kind of like a masterclass in horror pacing. And we talked about it a little bit in the recap about how it starts off very, very normal. You get, you get a slow build up to a certain point and then it like turns on a dime. I think it's not surprising when you watch it again, because we know from, <clears throat> I think, cultural osmosis that Drew Barrymore is in the first 15 minutes of this movie and then she's and then she's dead like there, there's this there's yes. this cultural awareness now that the first 15 minutes of scream are you know a classic or 13 minutes mm -hmm. um but at the time um like we mentioned before Drew Barrymore mm -hmm. was a huge star I mean wow. yeah she had like a, a couple of years of being kind of you know out of yeah the but even it just just in terms of name recognition she was a huge she's star. on the poster like yeah in a and big she, way and she did a lot of the promo before the movie was released like she was billed as essentially the star of the movie because at the time like like most of the cast were not names like nev campbell wasn't a name yeah, uh, Rosemary wasn't a name. David Arquette wasn't a name. Courtney Cox was a name, but like Courtney Cox is on Friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, the understanding going into the movie was that she was the star, and it gives the audience it gives the audience this false sense of security because you assume like she's going to make it through to the end. So when she dies, and she dies badly, mm -hmm. it is genuinely shocking. Yeah, no, no, no. it's very reminiscent of. Janet Lee in Psycho, uh -huh. billed as the star of the film, and then dies less than halfway through. And you, and then the audience was primed to believe that she would be fine mm -hmm. because she's a big, absolutely a big star. And and absolutely Janet Lee, same thing with this. So it's Drew Barrymore. Yeah. She's gonna live like, and she's yeah, exactly, sweet, and she's like a childhood sweetheart sort of feeling that has mm -hmm. now grown up. And yes, she yeah. You know, again, she had been in some. She had you know. Some things that happened, but 
the audience is just primed because we've known mm-hmm. her from like ET yeah. to, and to this, like her and to take care of her and to see her. And and, like and this. this scene, this opening scene was something that audiences were not accustomed to seeing her in. Yeah. Before that. Like the level of violence and brutality and horror in this scene is not something that Drew Barrymore had necessarily been associated with uh, and prior to that. West, so Wes Craven um, said that this scene was one of the reasons that he was at first a little hesitant to to direct this because he was just like, correct, I can't, I can't do this again. Like it, mm-hmm. and it's funny because Wes Craven started out making really, really brutal horror movies. If you look back at Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, and yeah. He was known for being very uncompromising, and mm-hmm. his movies, his his earlier movies, are a little, a little, is putting it mildly, um, you know, misogynistic and uh, very much so. dealing with and with assault against women and, and all these. Kinds yeah, of things. and he had expressed concern in later years about that being his legacy. He didn't want to be. He didn't want to be associated necessarily with like that level of like violence against women. I think that's something he was actively trying to distance himself from. And he had done a slew of uh, non-horror films. And in I think he- the late 80s and early 90s and I think to try, a, and try and get away from that a little bit. And I think he did a really good thing. Um, Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street could walk so Sidney Prescott could run. I think that Wes Craven ends up doing a really good job of doing female mm-hmm. leads in horror movies. Uh, yes. Nancy being the first one. And then mm-hmm. Sydney is such a good example of that too. But yeah. you originally get the sense that it's going to be Drew Barrymore's movie. And of course. And, and it's in- that's interesting too, because Drew Barrymore was originally cast as Sydney Prescott, you know, because like we said, she was the big name, like it made sense for her to take the lead. And she actually came back to Wes Craven and the producers and said, you know what? I would like to, I would like to be in the opening scene, which kind of, th- which threw a wrench into the <laughs> works at the time. Cause yep. she made this, she came to them with this, I think six weeks before they were set to start filming. And had so they had to cast yeah. pretty much laid out and now they had to like kind of scramble to recast this this lead role but it it plays so well into what we were saying before about how like Drew Barrymore was the person doing all the promo like she was the big name so of course she's doing all the press for it yeah it gives the audience the impression that she's gonna live and everything's gonna be fine and the um there's one video that I was watching where it was like you think it's Drew Barrymore you think she's safe she's dead and then it's a free-for-all like anybody can yes yes like it's it's, safe yeah exactly exactly it's setting up it's setting up the rules at the same time that it's showing you that it can break them yeah and and it's it's mirroring it mirrors the scene itself because it is i mean it's essentially a home invasion scene so you're not only getting the sense that like the place that you're supposed to be safe your home is no longer mm-hmm. and it's also give it's also telling the audience you are not safe either your expectations do not apply here and there's also a lot of setups of all mm-hmm. the windows in the house and the, yes the patio doors and the yes so this had been done before we've seen this mm-hmm. been done before in 
most famously in Black Christmas and When a Stranger Calls. I mean, the When a Stranger Calls is the classic babysitter story. The call is coming. Yeah, yeah, the call is coming from inside the house. This Mm -hmm. is the first time that it had been done with cell phones where it could be coming from anywhere. Anywhere. And you can't trace it. And you also can't tell that it's coming from inside the house until it is, or coming from near you until you are told, right? It's it's like, oh, it's a or like whatever. And even though it's been done before with the calls coming from inside the house, mm-hmm. it's still, I think it's because of the whole, I want to know who I'm looking at. And yes. it's and that like in the house, I can see you, but you don't know where exactly. I am. And, and that line, we mentioned it before, but that line is such a great shift in tone because there's it's it's her reaction like the way like she whips around and you can see in her face immediately you hear a very subtle music cue you hear a dog barking it's it's a perfect way of letting you know like things have just taken a turn yeah Uh, and and Wes Craven says in interviews Wes Craven said in interviews like interviews after the fact he was like I knew if we got this scene that the rest of the movie would be fine. We talked about this, I think in the Hellraiser episode, and he was actually talking about this movie. Wes Craven was talk, talks about how, if you nail an audience in the first mm-hmm. 10 minutes, yeah. of the party, yeah. you don't need to hit them again until way later because they're, they're good. Yeah, exactly. Right. And there is there, you do, there is a long stretch with no action immediately following the scene, like in Hellraiser. And it's just the, a drama. It's just a drama, but you're totally- It's a drama, yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's exposition. You're getting the backstory. You're getting the information you need to continue on. Not only that though, like it's this movie, the scene basically saved the film's production. Wes Craven was initially getting a lot of pushback from the studio. Um, they were- giving him a lot of directives for the way they wanted the film to look and feel that he did not, he did not want to use. Like he, they were giving him a lot of like ultimatums, like, well, you have to do it this way. This is, this is what audiences are going to want to see. So we need to give them what they're expecting. And he filmed this scene and he put a rough cut together and he sent it back to the studios and said, here's what we're doing. And they came back and basically said, we're going to let you, we're going to let you go. Because yeah. it was that it was that effective. And it's so funny because we have to do we do have to mention that this is a Miramax film. Yeah. And 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 it's one of those things where I love this movie so much, but every time that Miramax, that Miramax thing comes up, I'm just like it's a yeah, it is it is a Weinstein production. I go, no hiss. Yeah. But um, Bob Weinstein was the one who was really the shepherd of, of this particular film. Yes, yes. He had he was very heavily involved production and he so, was the one who we gave Wes Craven carte blanche. After yeah. Seeing this so movie. he's the one so who actually whatever whatever him. you need from us, we will we will give. Just continue to put out material like this. And he was trying to get Wes Craven to do it, and the opening scene was actually something mm-hmm. that made him go, "I I can't do this again. Like I I just I got to do more serious things." So he said in a um yeah. He said in an interview, I, you know, had been doing really serious films and I just thought I was, I was over horror movies. I just didn't mm-hmm. want to do that anymore. And the yeah, I think he had genre like fatigue violent. at that point. He had genre fatigue. I mean, he'd been doing it for like 20 years. So he was just like, I can't and also, do it. We've, we've also mentioned this before too, but like horror was not considered a legitimate genre for a very long time. He was a bona fide horror director, I think to a certain degree, because it limits your opportunities 
outside of the genre. That's the other reason why I think he was trying to distance himself a little bit because he had other films he wanted to make that he wasn't getting the opportunity because he's the horror guy. Yeah. And everybody knows horror's not real film. So no, we're not going to give you this movie. Sorry. So he says, I was doing a convention somewhere and a kid came up to me and said, you know, I love Last House on the Left. You should do something that really kicks ass again. And I thought, yeah. and I thought, God, I must be getting soft. And I immediately called up Bob Weinstein and said, okay, let's do it. So I just love yeah. that a little and then, kid came up to him and was like, I know your, your new movies suck. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do something good. Do something that's good. And he's like, oh God. But yeah, I, the, the other thing that's very cool about this scene is the way the uh, popcorn on the stove basically acts as a timer. As the scene gets more and more out of control, you see the bag, like the, because it's a Jiffy Pop. I don't know. I don't know if the kids know what Jiffy Pop is, but you have a foil container, you put it on the stovetop and then it pops and it kind of like puffs up. And then when it's done, you tear open the bag and you pour it into the bowl. But um, if you don't, but if you don't watch it, it burns. It's yeah, it, it catches fire. And that's exactly what happens. So as the scene spirals out of control, you see the bag get bigger and bigger until it finally like bursts into flames, basically. I mean, it's it's a cool, it's a cool device to kind of act as a timer. And it's something like it's something so normal. You're making popcorn, like everybody makes popcorn. She's watch. She's going to watch a horror movie. It's also making fun of of horror movies as well as leaning in. I like this and, and movie it's, and stuff. Yeah, uh, it's well, it's it's also setting up this whole like meta aspect to yeah. the rest of the movie because it's it's acknowledging the genre. You know, like it. it you know how when you watch a zombie movie. Nobody ever says the word zombie. Well, I don't know if it, what, is it the first movie that kind of like referenced the genre in the way that it does? It was definitely the first to like really, I think, comment on it in a way that was making to, fun I, of it. To really lean into it. It was making, it was leaning into the genre while simultaneously making fun of it. I wouldn't even necessarily say making fun of it because it never crosses that line into parody no um, not making fun of it like parodying like, it it's making no it's more like like, like a like a wink and a nod it's meta it's commenting on yeah, it yeah yeah exactly sydney says some girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door and then what happens literally five minutes later she runs up the she stairs. literally runs up the stairs instead of going so it's out like that it's, it's self-aware yeah. it's definitely self-aware and going back to that opening scene it starts the trend you see in the rest of the movie where it's setting up all of the rules and all the things we think we know about the horror genre and then it's smashing them to pieces that's i mean that's one of the interesting things about the way this movie was written is that it has this sort of brazen use of horror tropes which are deliberately written to engage the audience so when she does run up the stairs. Kevin Williamson said he wrote that so the audience could yell, don't go up the stairs because he talked about going to see films like Halloween in his childhood. And part of the fun is that audience reaction and interaction. So exactly. he peppered in a lot of opportunities for people to to yell at their screen and yell at these characters and engage in a way that you don't get with other with other types of films. This movie, the, the first few minutes are, are, are really a very deliberate callback to old horror tales like scary stories definitely um mm-hmm. and it's a, yeah. it's a self-contained horror movie short in 13 minutes yeah and then yeah you're like and oh it's, my it's... god there's two more hours left of this movie where is it going to go from here like it can go it could go to... anywhere yeah to, to start at the level that they do like you're priming your audience like buckle in because you have no idea 
where this is going to go. That kind of leads us into that idea of, of you know, horror tropes mm-hmm. being written to engage the audience. And I think I mentioned this to you the other day that when this movie came out, it was both immediately genius and immediately tired. You can't replicate this tone. Yes, I have kind of referred to this as a lightning in a bottle because it hit that perfect blend of like self-referential humor and genuine scares. Because that's the thing, like, yeah, you could be, you can be a clever movie, you can make the references and like the wink and the nod and it's fine. But like, if you don't have a good, like a good basic scary movie plot behind it, it's not going to work. It's going to come across as smug. It's going to come across as smarmy. And the fact that they just made a good scary movie on top of everything else is what keeps it from falling into that, that. Right. uh, And it's it's all the reference points to these different mm-hmm. things like Randy yeah. like the really the the linchpin to all of that you know and, and he is the horror nerd in the horror movie which is now I think it's a little bit more common but at the time that was very kind of fresh <laughs> and he's even you know saying you know you don't do this you don't do this you can't you can't yes he, yeah he has a series of rules for surviving horror movies like the first one is like you can never drink or do drugs can't drink or do drugs you can't have sex and you never ever say i'll be right back that's um, also a great line oh, that's also a great moment too matthew lillard like, oh and twins send a beer you want one back. you right back so they're they're commenting on it but then 10 minutes later yeah. randy is drunk on the couch watching halloween being like look behind you and the killer is literally right behind he's him. literally right behind him it's playing with these tropes in a really cool and really clever way but it it worked in this it works in this film because it had never really been done it was it was just like wow this is like all new it's so new exactly but but the second the second anyone tries to imitate that it's already done and it's like why why are you doing this again that's why i think that's why the the sequels suffer compared to the first one because you can't get that same energy back Scream 2 and Scream 3 felt more like your traditional horror movie. Yeah. And I think they're, I think they're fun movies. I do enjoy them, but it's like, you can't even, you, you really can't even put them on the same level. Scream 2 as- is, I like what Scream 2 is doing in terms of the, se- in terms of the sequel idea. Like it's very self-referential yeah. in terms of what sequels are. So I like mm-hmm. that. It's just, too, it's very bloated. It's just kind of, it, it's yeah. trying to do too much. And even, and honestly, even like, like you said, referencing like w- the rules of a horror movie sequel, it literally just feels like it's rehashing itself. Yep. You know what I mean? It's, by the time Scream 2 comes out, it, it already feels tired. Yep. And that's why it just doesn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't work, but it doesn't work on the same level. Scream 2 to me felt like a lot of really good scenes stitched together into yep. a just okay movie. Because there's cool. some great scares too. There's some great parts in that movie. I think it just- Yeah, yeah. But the, but the like when you watch it beginning to end, it feels like a slog compared to the first one. It's a lot. It feels very long. It feels yeah, very overbaked in a lot of different ways. Whereas I agree. the movie, everything is very clear and tight. And I think one of the things, one of the things I really like about this movie too is that it kind of subverts the trope of like, the silent killer so you know you're michael myers you're jason like they just silently stalk and they stab and like they're scary because they're because they're like silent monsters whatever but in this movie the monster is basically nothing but a voice like the majority of the majority of the killer's time on screen is on the phone and i think that's i think that's kind of like kind of a fun way of 
again, playing with playing with tropes and playing with these expectations and kind of subverting them. The other thing is that that's a very Wes Craven sort of thing as well with mm. um, with Freddy. Like Freddy is the one kind yes. of serial uh, movie killer slasher that has a personality and has a voice that's very specific. Freddy's so Freddy's very chatty. Very chatty. Most, uh, very chatty. Most, uh, horror movie killers yeah to the point where you want to tell them like shut up but uh like, yeah, this, guy, match. Come on. this guy's like you know very smart very um and they had very well spoken and i like that they had a different guy do the voice for the phone yeah yeah um, so, so the voice so really the voice on the phone that. we mentioned before was roger jackson and they they specifically wanted I think they had him on set just for uh, the Drew Barrymore. And then he was so good that they decided to keep him on for the remainder of the shoot. And when they filmed, Drew Barrymore was actually adamant that she didn't want to meet him before the film. And she didn't want to like see where he was. So he was actually on the phone with her while they were filming. But he was like kind of secluded on another part of the set. So she never met him face-to-face throughout the entire shoot. In that scene, something that I wanted to mention was that Drew Barrymore would run around and do sprints before takes to get out of breath. And also Wes Craven would tell her sad stories about dogs being hit by cars in order to get her to be upset. (laughs) To to get her to cry, yeah, no, that's- uh, that's He was like, yeah, she's a really big animal lover. So I started started telling her all these stories about animals. Yeah, she had like like an earpiece in, so- Craven like whisper like stories by animal abuse. So she's super stressed. Yeah, exactly. So the idea that um that she never meets the voice on the other end of the phone is something that Wes Craven carried into the rest of the production. Yep. After this scene, um, when they when they kept Roger Jackson on like for the duration of filming, they made it a point of not having him meet any of the any of the main cast. In fact, I read somewhere that like some of them still have never like actually seen his face, which actually feels like a lie. That's in this age. That seems like I feel like that was something that was sort of like sensationalized or blown out of proportion. And it heightens the tension because you never you never find out who you're actually talking to. And we are, we've all we've said this time and time again, the scariest thing is what you can't see. So that person, the person on the other end of the phone could be anyone. And that bit where Drew, where Drew says, where Casey says, what do you what do you want? And he says to see what your insides look like. And it's like, yeah, that line. I was, I think, traumatized by that line when I saw this movie the first time because it is so it's so on the nose but like in a way in a way that's really that's genuinely scary also right before also right uh before that is when he picks up the phone and she's like listen asshole and he goes no you listen you little bitch if you hang up i'll gut you and it's like i mean it's 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 shocking in the way that it escalates the scene but there's something about the line because i want to see what your insides look like i can't it's I don't know. It's just, a, that's a very scary, that's a very scary line. It's because it's scary. so, I think part of it is just the matter of factness. Oh yeah. Of it. It's just like, like, well, okay. Because you're, you know, people like victims in horror movies saying like, why are you doing this? And like, you know, the, you don't get an answer because, you know, especially with like a Michael or a Jason, they're yeah. just kind of like, or it's like this, or it's like the stranger. And I'm like, like, because you were home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, there's something genuinely chilling about like asking what is essentially a rhetorical question and getting a concrete answer. Yeah. I want to murder you and, and look at your organs. Like, yeah, it's, okay. it's very, very scary. Uh, okay, well, now we know. 
and I, I feel like we can't talk about this movie without talking about the all, all, all the bullshit around the filming release. So we already mentioned like the studio pushback. Like you have to make horror movies the way we tell you to make horror movies, even though none of our horror movies have worked for years and years and years. Luckily that got resolved. So we're happy about that. But one of the issues that they ran into with the filming of this movie is that the location where they were going to film the high school scenes was an actual high school in Santa Rosa three weeks, I think, before they were set to film. And they got, they had gotten the permission. They got like, they had gotten the, the paperwork, like everything was squared away. They were good to go. And all of a sudden the school board said, actually, no. And they had like a town forum where basically like every, like all the, all the citizens in town came out to talk about how terrible Wes Craven was and how bad his movies were. And horror is an abomination. Part of the, the reason there was so much controversy uh, surrounding the, the filming of a horror movie in a local school was because there had been a murder of a local girl, uh, Polly Kloss, I think three years before. And she was a young, she was a young kid. Yeah. Um, she was like 10 or 11. Like, like a horrible, horrible situation, obviously. Um, and I think the, the, the town was still kind of raw yep. from that. And this is also back in the 90s where they were really they were really pushing this idea that there was a correlation between like watching horror movies and like a propensity towards violence, yep. which I think has been largely disproved. And they comment on that in the movie. They say, uh, Billy says, movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think like for my money, like I, I agree that I don't think like watching violent movies or playing violent video games is going to make you a violent person. No. I think if you have violent tendencies already it'll bring it out maybe could it bring that out could it push you over the edge potentially but it's not going to it's not going to plant them right. which is what was being argued at the like in at this time yep. was that like yep. watching watching a violent movie is going to be the thing that makes you violent now oh. Alyssa and I attest to the fact that that's not true because that we haven't not. killed anyone and we watch a lot of movies. So, so, I mean, like, there's, it's, there's definitely an understanding of why the town reacted the way it did. And even in the years since, Wes Craven has acknowledged, like, I, un- now I understand why people were so emotional about it. And I, oh, yeah. I, I get, I get the protest, but at the time it threw like a huge wrench into the, into the production. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a production that was already kind of being plagued by, uh, the studio and everything else so to have one more like hiccup Dang. hiccup like this on top of everything else was a day yeah really shitty situation um they ended up finding a community center that used to be a school so it had so it already looked like it, it like it already had like the architecture yep um so they just threw some lockers in and because it's not controlled by like, the school board or anything they just needed to like pay a fee to use it it was basically just like public space yeah and nobody nobody had the right to kick them out and it, and it looks and it, it, it works fine it, no it works it, it totally works totally fine. fine it's it's yeah it's perfect um but that actually that sort of thing comes back to haunt them in the writing of screen three they basically had to scrap most of the script and redo it or refigure out figure out how they're mm-hmm. gonna do it how they're gonna film it because in the wake of them, in the wake of pre-production and script writing, Columbine happened. Yeah. And 
it yeah. completely derailed not just this movie but a lot of movies a lot like of movies Kevin Williamson, yeah like said earlier Kevin Williamson had a his directorial debut which was originally supposed to be called Killing Mrs. Tingle and it got yeah, which which is the name of the book that it's based on too yep and it got changed to teaching mrs tingle and got uh kicked to like a year and a half later and it got buried mm -hmm. it was supposed to be his big like debut as a director it's also not that not a good movie it is funny in the credits at the very end if you watch if you watch the scroll all the way to the end there is a note from west west craven saying and no thanks whatsoever to the santa rosa school board <laughs> <laughs> love that you know what get it get it I, th I i think it's fine i mean it is it is funny to look at this movie now and think about how much controversy there was oh my god yeah People it was like treating it like it was like the antichrist of the film industry you would have thought what? it was solo like good god yeah. yeah it's for the time it was way more intense than anything else that had been out recently it did it did escalate the genre in terms of in terms of violence and what you can what you can get away with showing on screen but when you look at it by today's standards it is mild it's pretty mild like the scenes that are scary are still very very scary but like in terms of the violence i i mean I, and again maybe it's just because we watch a lot of movies and i have a weird threshold now but I watch it now and it seems almost tame compared to I think because <laughs> I mean it's it's from the 90s it didn't really and there are moments that haven't really aged well so I think that sure. that might be also part of it but I think too yeah. it's definitely it's got that 90s vibe to it like we were talking about with the music mm -hmm. and the clothes yeah, and yeah. The, the way that they speak. And I think that it's easier to kind of put it into like a time capsule in that way. It really did kickstart a tidal wave of slasher teen focused horror movies. Yeah, like, there, definitely, there was definitely a boom of that in like the late nineties, early two thousands. The faculty, you get urban legend, you get final destination. You get, I know what you did last yeah, summer. I know what you did last summer. I still know what you did last summer. You get all of these movies that would not have been greenlit if it weren't for if this if this movie hadn't been successful which yep. is why it's so it, it is crazy to think about how successful it was because it was more of a sleeper hit like people didn't necessarily it came out right before christmas yeah it came out right before christmas for yeah so i think opening weekend it really didn't make a lot of money and i think after the holidays is when it really started to pick up and um, it was kids going oh and i think one of the one of the producers said we should put this out around the holidays. Everyone was like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. And they were like, no, hear me out. We will, we will put it out while the kids are on Christmas vacation from school yes. and they come back mm -hmm. to school and they're like, oh my God, I saw this movie. And I specifically remember the word of mouth when I was younger too, because I was still in Catholic school when this movie came out. And oh, I was in, like, I was in, I was in public the, school. I was in no man's the land. Contra, the controversy around this movie. I just, I remember people talking about it and they were, they were aghast. They were shocked and appalled at this, at this film full of teen murder and violence and blah, blah, blah. Like it was that level of like, can you believe that people are watching this? And it made me want to see it because people are, because yeah, all the pearl clutching like made me want to, made me want to see what was up. And like, this was at a point where I was already reading like scary stories and very, very, 
early stages of like dipping my toe into true crime and things like that. So my brain was already sort of primed for the scary movie experience. Yep. So to hear people talking about this and treating it like it was the most shocking thing they'd ever seen, I was like, well, I want to be shocked. Yeah, it was like, it's like, a, it, took a, it took a couple of years to actually see it, but I do remember, I do remember people being very upset. Uh, and in fact, in fact, when this movie first went through like the ratings board, it got an NC-17 rating. Yeah, and there which, is, it's crazy to me. There is an unrated version, um, which I have seen. And even the, even the unrated version with the additional material is still pretty tame. I mean, yeah, compared to like what was out at the time, like when you put it in context, that's different but you still look at it and it just doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't seem that bad in the sense that like it's attracting all this negative yeah. attention. And I mean, part of it is just the fact that like the horror genre was basically running on fumes and this was something so different and so new that this was like a, it's an edgy, dangerous mid nineties. Oh my God. Like it just felt like yeah. a sexy thriller soap opera you know what it, it did but if you're trying to get a wide release it is a death note oh it's oh it's it's so it's stupid for, your for like getting your movie any publicity or like any like absolutely money absolutely. but i get why you know what though you know what though um sorry <laughs> you want to finish yours. i said i get i get why they did it because it was uh it yeah was kind of an en vogue thing to like because it, it, it totally. was now, but it was also this thing where people kind of went NC-17. You know what, though? It actually, I think it worked in their favor because the cuts that they made made the film better. Yep. So like, there's, uh, there, there's three major things that I can remember being cut. Like the first one is a shot of Steve after he's gutted, Casey's boyfriend, of course. Uh -huh. And there's a long shot where he's like sitting in the chair where he's been like kind of duct taped and you see all his guts basically like slide out of his abdomen onto the floor. Yeah. Um, and in the in the in the R-rated version, like you get a you see his head kind of roll back, it cuts to Casey staring at him in horror. And then it cuts back to a, a still shot of Steve with all his guts on the floor. Um, just shows you don't you don't need it sometimes you don't need it yeah exactly like in terms of yeah in terms of effects I like it a lot but yeah the, I feel like it's a tighter edit when you take it out the other moment in that scene is the shot where the camera like rushes in on Casey when she's hanging from the tree oh. in the front and it's this like frantic hairy like kind of like the camera's like rushing towards her and then like this the shot cuts out in the in the unrated version it's just sort of like a slow crawl towards her so a shot that's a shot that's like a few seconds long is like closer to like six or seven and it doesn't it doesn't work and like the reason the reason they sped it up is because they said they showed this dead teenager on screen for too long so they they just sped up the shot to like it works so much and it better. works it works so much better it, it it it's like the perfect cap to a very frantic and chaotic scene to end with this frantic chaotic parting shot exactly exactly the only part the only shot i wish had remained intact from the nc-17 version is in the scene where billy and Stu have been stabbing each other and there's a shot where uh, Stu is standing in front of Sydney's dad. He's like duct taped and he's like laying on the floor and you hear this like dripping sound. And in the unrated version, the camera like pans down and you can see this enormous 
pool of blood on the floor next to Stu, where he's basically been like bleeding no, out. And the, dri- sound, the dripping sound is like the the wounds dripping in his arm, like dripping onto the onto the floor. You got um, me too deep, man. I think I'm dying, man. Yeah. That is the only shot I wish had remained intact because it is very disturbing. It's very disturbing. Yeah, very disturbing. And the reason they cut it is because the. The ratings board said, well, you can't show, you can't show blood actually flowing. Yeah, there's a lot of blood in this movie, but it's all like blood on someone or blood like yeah. on things. It's not yeah. coming out. Like Actually though, there is one shot when Casey Becker gets stabbed in the chest and oh. she's on the ground. You see it like pumping. They get out. what? They, they got around that by telling the board like, oh, well, the actress was traumatized while we were filming this. So if we take it out, that would be disrespectful to her. And they're like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, uh, with with that shot and the shot of the knife actually going into her chest, they wanted to cut that. Imagine if they had. I get it, but also like that shot is iconic to that scene. You need it. Like you need you need to see it. Yeah, that's a fucked up thing to say. No, but like you need it. It, it has, has to but happen. It has to happen. Like in ter- like like in terms of the way the scene is structured, like the way the the way the build happens. If you don't actually see it, see the knife go in. It basically cul- it basically builds to nothing. There's no culmination. Yep. So I like that they lied about that. <laughs> no, it would be disrespectful to the actress. And they were like, oh yeah, you're right. Oh, I could talk about this movie all day. Um, and but, no, I know. But obviously, I mean, it's, I mean, we don't even need to say whether or not we recommend this movie. I think we obviously, we, yeah, I mean, we obviously recommend it. it if for you your, haven't seen, you picked it for your I, birthday. I picked it for my it. birthday, so that should tell you all you need to know. If you. <laughs> seen it what are you doing with your life it is free on voodoo it's free on voodoo yes with ads. yes you just have to sign up scream scream 2 and scream 3 are all available for free right now yes. on voodoo. so you can go watch it there i mean it's available other places obviously but those are the places where it's available for free right now correct yeah it's not on yeah. netflix anymore go, go, go and watch it and if you've already seen it go watch it again it's so good i was laughing so, so hard the other day it's it's so funny it's and like intentionally so funny. funny it's not even like one of those movies where like you're laughing I just love I just love Dwight yeah like you're, you're where you're laughing like you're meant to be laughing I just love Dewey being like you love when Dewey I, when I wear this badge you expect me as a man of the law <laughs> you treat me like a man of the law you treat me like a man of the law the movie oh and we didn't and one thing that we did not mention before we get to our palate cleansers um the principal yes. played by the Fonz. Henry Winkler! Henry Winkler's in this movie! In this house, we love and support anything that Henry Winkler does. It's so good. He's so yeah. good. And it's just great love to it. see when he and pops his, up. His, his death, too, was a last-minute addition to the script because they realized, I think, like, 25 minutes had gone by without a kill. And yep. they're like, people get bored. We gotta do something. We so gotta kill, kill the principal. Let's kill the principal. <laughs> let's kill, let's kill Fonzie. A, it's another... And it's such, it's another great scene. It's a great kill. It's so good. So good. And I just, I love it so much. So that wraps up our discussion of Scream. Such a good movie. Go watch it. It it really holds up. So Mm -hmm. let us get into our palate cleansers. So what is your palate cleanser? I'm sitting in my palate cleanser right now. Yay. Yay. (laughs) So... (laughs) So we are all kind of, you know, staying close to home right now. Um, And Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of rearrange some stuff in my house just to make it feel a little bit 
more of a different space because, you know, I'm in here a lot. I work from home right now. So I just wanted to mm -hmm. change it, change it up. And I've been trying to figure out how to get a chair into this house, like in a, in an area where I can just kind of sit in it and relax. Cause I'm sick of mm -hmm. sitting on my couch. I'm sick of sitting at my breakfast nook. So I went online and my sister suggested to get a Papazon chair. I found one on Amazon and got that. And then I, I wanted a different cover. So I found a cushion for the Papazon on cost plus, and it is yeah. the best thing that I have done for myself all year. It is <laughs> a joy. It is my favorite thing in my house, aside from my Christmas tree. And I put it in the corner next to my Christmas tree, like near my Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that in the morning when I'm working or if I'm, you know, just having coffee or if I'm working on a project or something, I can just yeah. sit in my chair and my Christmas tree is right there. Yesterday, I, you know, in the morning I was, I was sitting here, you know, hanging out, working on some stuff, listening to the new Taylor Swift. And I was just like, this is great. And it's just <laughs> cozy. And it just, oh, it's so nice. But you know, what's funny is that I can't really sleep in it because it's not comfortable enough to sleep in it. It doesn't really look like a loungy chair, like a, like a lean back. It doesn't, it's not a chair you can, you can sit in and fall asleep in. It's a chair that you no, can no. It's a chair you can just like sit in with a blanket and get yeah. work done, but it's just, oh, it's so nice. So that is my palate cleanser. My palate cleanser is my chair. I texted Lindsay earlier this week and I said, the chair, <laughs> the chair and I are one. I am never leaving this chair. <laughs> yeah, I am now, the chair is my house now. I have now moved into the chair. It is now, <laughs> there is no, and I think I texted you, there is no alley only chair. So, yes. <laughs> Which, which made me laugh really hard when you said that. It's really true though. It's so true. All right. So, yep, that's my palate cleanser. What is your palate cleanser this week, Lindsay? My my palate cleanser. Um, so I am a lover of podcasts. Mm. And so back in October, I was trying to find something spooky to listen to. Cause like, you know, and something like kind of moving away from like the true crime genre. Cause I listened to a lot of true crime and I just needed, it wasn't quite scratching like the Halloween Mm -hmm. Um, so I was trying to find something with like scary stories. I stumbled upon, uh, a podcast called the Magnus archives. And I say that, like, I'm the only person listening to it. It's actually a massively popular podcast. I have since found out, but it's, you know, it's got like a story of the week format. And I was like, all right, that should, that, that should be the thing I'm looking for. I got, I don't know, 10 episodes in. And I started to realize that all the stories are connected. Yeah. And not only that, but there's also this like overarching meta plot going on in the background. So like the premise is that there's this institute in London that collects stories of the supernatural and catalogs them just, to, you know, have them on record. So it's like a, a collection of like paranormal or supernatural experiences that people have had. The, I, so this podcast is created by Jonathan Sims, written by Jonathan Sims starring Jonathan Sims and featuring a lead character named Jonathan Sims, which just cool. added to the whole like meta plot confusion. Cause if you look in the descriptions, it says this episode was written by Jonathan Sims. I'm like, is this, is this like a meta thing? Like, what are like, are we like blurring the line between fiction and reality? I'm like, oh no, it turns out it's the same guy. So it's fine. I was a little bit I, I was, it took me a while to get on board. One, because I really just wanted a scary story anthology. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't 
I really want to get involved in like plot lines. I just want to hear like the spooky stories. But because I am an obsessive personality, all you need to do is give me one character that I can get a little bit attached to. And oh my God, guess what? Now I'm invested and I have to listen to everything. Um, so I have spent the last, I would say week and a half kind of blitzing through the last two seasons. There's five seasons total. And I was kind of listening to it on and off for the first two seasons because I really didn't think I was going to keep going. Yeah. Because the other thing is the main character, the one doing all the, the narrations is sort of willfully unpleasant. So I did, I did a thing I never know. I never usually do. I went ahead and read a bunch of spoilers. So I was like, at what point does this guy stop being an asshole? Because if the answer is never, I think I have to be done. It reaches it like it reaches a point in, in the plot, which again, I didn't even think I wanted where all of a sudden I went, Oh my God, wait, now I'm in like it, like it flipped a switch in my brain that I did not ask for. And I went from like, yeah, okay, it's good to no, I'm all in. And I need to know everything that happens right away. It's intensely annoying to be honest with you because I did not need another obsession. No, you really didn't. I don't, I don't, I did not ask for this or want it, but here we are. When and like were- the, the supernatural boyfriends traversing a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And it's just hitting so many parts of my id at once. It's a weirdly self-indulgent show. Lindsay, considering I haven't written it. <laughs> Lindsay, Lindsay texted me and she was like, ah, oh, there's an unrequited queer love story and I can't stop. Oh God. And so like, she was like, this is, yeah, no, I'm, I am, I am, I am suffering right now. <laughs> I didn't ask for it, but I also like love it so much now. Season, yeah. the fifth season is broken up. So they went on hiatus last month and I don't even fucking know when they're coming back. So I'm just doomed to suffer forever, I guess. Life is we'll pain. Life is pain. Yeah, it's fine. Um, but also I love it. And if you are looking for, if you're looking for a good spooky podcast, that focuses on like eldritch horror and like body horror and all sorts of fun things like that. To read, if you want a story that's going to make you gag, because this one, the, there have been several episodes. And again, I've mentioned like my threshold is pretty high at this point. Um, there have been stories that have been so disgusting. I've almost had to turn them off. Fair play to you. That is not easy to do for me. Yikes. Uh, so yeah, I guess in a weird way, my palate cleanser is the Magnus Archives. All mm-hmm. right. So that wraps up our first season of Brides of Frankenstein. Holy wild. smokes. Um, we hope you enjoyed <laughs> our first season. We are going to take a little bit of a break to mm-hmm. um, celebrate the holiday and the new year. And uh, we will be back after the new year coming at you with some awesome content. We've already got some great things planned for 2021. And yes. we are super psyched about some of the stuff that we've got on the docket for you all. And we figured this would be a great one to end with considering that it is Lindsay's birthday and it's right before yes. Christmas and it's just great. If you are celebrating Hanukkah right now, have a happy, wonderful Hanukkah. We encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to see when we are coming back. It'll be sometime in 
January. Um, follow us on mm -hmm. Twitter and Instagram at FrankenBridePod. That's for both of those. And for email. You can also email us at FrankenBridePod at gmail.com. And we hope that you have a very safe and happy holiday season. Uh, stay yes. healthy. Wash your hands. Uh, my palate cleanser was almost going to be that there's a vaccine <laughs> on the way. So yay. Yay. We'll, we'll get through this together. Have a wonderful holiday and great end of the year. Uh, 2020 is almost over. We did it. Yay. And um, please, uh, yeah, so enjoy. And uh, we will see you next year for season two of Brides of Frankenstein. Yes, Thanks, everyone. Bye. Once they're back at Tatum and Dewey's house, Sydney actually gets another phone call from the killer. Hello, Sydney. Taunt, who taunts her for... <laughs> oh. the, the movie is Guess You Fingered the Wrong Guy. Hey! <laughs> and he just caught me by surprise. I'm sorry. It is! He says, doesn't, doesn't he say... No, no, that's exactly that's exactly what he said. But I was I went in to quote it, and I realized what I was about to say, and it made me. Laugh. You never want to finger the wrong guy. You never want to finger the wrong guy. <laughs> you always want to have consent when you're fingering. <laughs> that's our blooper. That's how you know you're fingering the right guy. Hey, if you're gonna finger, if you're gonna finger the right guy. Take care of yourselves. Be safe. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's yeah. dangerous out this there. Has been, this, is, this has been a PSA from the Brides of Frankenstein. The more you know. Ding, the more you know. <laughs> this is our blooper, 1000%. Have to be. I'm gonna put in the summary. I'm gonna put in a summary. Plus, a, stay tuned at the end for a very special PSA. Warning for fingering. <laughs> Content warning contains finger. Um. So. <laughs> <laughs>